Lord God, thank you for this wonderful day where we can remember uh, these world-changing events. Now speak to us, I pray in your name. Amen. Have you ever had this experience where uh, somebody you know uh, and are close to has come to believe something, has, has gone to see a movie, and they've loved the movie, and they come back and they drag you to go and see the movie, and you go to see the movie, and you experience this enormous pressure to like the movie in just the way they did. Have you ever had that experience? I have. I'll tell you which movie it is. The Notebook. <laughs> right? Oh, my goodness. The Notebook. Oh, man. If it just finished like 15 minutes before it finished, it'd be barely tolerable. It's like, let's watch The Notebook for fun. Take a bunch of bamboo slivers and shove them under your fingernails. You know, that's what it's like as an experience for me. Other people, it's like the most moving movie they've ever seen. It's like, oh, my goodness. It's extraordinary. Um, we have this tendency, don't we, to want others to come to these moving experiences that we've had in the same way that we have. You know, we can do the same in religion, with, with religion, can't we? With God. Now, you, may, you may have had this experience, and it can happen both for the irreligious and for the sort of uber-religious, the super-religious people. So um, you may have someone in your life who is really very, very committed to the proposition that there is no God, and anybody who believes in God, is uh, there's something wrong intellectually with them, they're kind of nuts, and they're you know, intellectually stunted and emotionally deficient, and you may have that, and they, there are people who put pressure on you if you have some kind of a faith. You have to believe like I believe, you have to experience the world like I experience the world, that there is no God, you're a moron if you think there's a God. No, of course, hate to say it's here, you may also have some religious friends or family who do the same to you from their religious point of view, right? Maybe who, who say, who, who put enormous pressure on you to believe in God the way they believe in God. Maybe that's the reason you're here this morning, just to shut them up and keep them happy. Uh, and, you know, we'll pray for you later if that's the case. Um, this pressure, you've got to experience God in the same way that I do, with the same intensity, in the same reality, right? We can have that. Um, spoke to a guy, this is the beauty of preaching services back to back, another guy who was visiting this morning from New York, and he said, yeah, you know, um, he, said, my he said, my wife's Southern Baptist, and he said, I get what you mean, that's another whole kind of religious crazy, isn't it? And, and we laughed, and we talked, and then he cried, and no, it was fine, but we do that, right? Here's the thing that I love about Christianity properly understood, and I love about this passage in John 20, is that God does not put pressure on us to experience himself in the same way that other people do. That he treats us as individuals, starting with us, starting with us just where we are. And that's remarkable. So I want to, I want to show you this from the, uh, John 20. This, uh, we, we read one of the stories, and I want to show you this by talking about three people, the three characters who emerge in these stories about Jesus' resurrection. Now, the first character is uh, Mary Magdalene. You might have seen the movie called Mary Magdalene. I haven't, but you might have. She's well known. So, uh, there's Mary, and guess what happens to Mary, right? She goes there early in the morning with her friends, they go to look for the body, um, and uh, they're not there, they run back, get the blokes, the male disciples come, they see an empty tomb, they run away, 
Mary comes back. She's crying. She bent over the in to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken the Lord, my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, uh, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Oh. There's Mary, right? Going about her business, looking for Jesus' body, doesn't see it. She's distraught. She sees this figure. She thinks that it's, he's the gardener, doesn't get Jesus at all. Jesus speaks one word to her. Jesus recognizes her, and her whole life changes on a dime. Her whole recognition of Jesus, everything just goes bang. I get you, Jesus. Rabboni, teacher, just like that. Now, let me tell you, you may be somebody who uh, has had a religious experience just like Mary's. You're going along, minding your own business, thinking life's okay, not recognizing who Jesus is at all, just doing your thing. And then, as it were, out of the middle of nowhere, God speaks to you, God encounters you, and you go, bang, I get it. Just like that. Um, we, had a, we have a very good friend who um, turned up at our church in Canada many years ago, and uh, she'd spent uh, most of her young life working in the sex industry, and her pimp brought her to church. And she had an experience like Mary. She walked into church with her pimp on Easter Sunday, and she's sitting there, and I'm speaking, and she, God just, bang, she encounters Jesus. And she knows on the spot that everything in her life is different, and from now on, she has to follow him. And she sits at the back of church, and we talk together. She's in tears. Her pimp goes home without her, and uh, her life is different. No great search, no great thinking, just a profound encounter with God that changes everything. She's finishing a law degree now. She's got a lovely boyfriend. Her life's together. She's clean. It's amazing. That happens, doesn't it? It really does. It might have happened to you. It might happen to you this morning. You might be here this morning and one of those people that God is just going to speak to you in a way you've never heard before. You're going to hear Jesus say your name and you're going to go, yeah, that's it. No doubts, no thinking, no questions, boom, in like that. Isn't that cool? That happens. Now, of course, if you've had that sort of experience, you, you, might, like, you might think it's normal for everyone. And you might get into the temptation of sort of trying to say to everyone, this is how you should experience God. But, but actually, that's not true, is it? Not everybody experiences God or comes to God in the way of Mary. So then we have good old Thomas, as Doug read for us, uh, doubting Thomas or believing Thomas or really sensible scientific Thomas is how I like to think of him. You couldn't ask for an experience of Jesus more different to that of Mary's, that the experience that Thomas has, right? So this is the story. Uh, Jesus is, a, they're all gathering for church one Sunday, 
and uh, uh, actually probably wasn't a Sunday, they were all gathering and worshiping, and uh, Jesus turns up, and Thomas wasn't there. By the way, a little aside, uh, there's a good reason not to miss church, because just the Sunday you don't go to church, Jesus might show up, and you'll miss, sorry, that's yeah, I just thought I'd throw that in. It seemed funny to me. Um, so, they, so he's missed Jesus, and, and he doesn't believe them, right? He just doesn't believe it. And this is important because, it's important for us, because we tend to be victims of chronological snobbery, which means we think because we live later than these early disciples did, we're more sophisticated, we understand the world better than they did. And they were, of course, they were all gullible. They knew that they, they didn't understand that dead people stayed dead. But we're sophisticated 21st century people. We know that things like resurrections can't happen. But that's not true. That's just pure chronological snobbery or arrogance. After all, you can really think of the whole of Western philosophy and our Western ideas as a footnote on the work of Plato and Aristotle. I mean, they're the greatest, the, some of the greatest thinkers the world has ever known. They set up the basic foundations of our thought, right? Uh, and here's another thing about ancient people. I'll let you in on a little secret. Ancient people knew that when someone died, they stayed dead. They probably knew that more than you or I did because in the ancient world, where did people tend to die? Where did they die? Mostly at home. And what age were they when they died? Well, often very young and really all the way through their life. So, so, P, so Thomas would have been far more personally familiar with death than most of us. And Thomas knew that when you died, you died and you stayed dead. So when he hears his buddies going, well, we just saw Jesus. He came to church with us. He's like, no, 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 no. Unless I've got some evidence. I want to see. I want to see him. I want to touch him. I want to see the wounds. So uh, that is uh, what he sets out to do. And then he goes to church with them again. Uh, and uh, <laughs> what I love about Thomas is he's, he's just, he's an evidentialist. And he's a skeptic. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. And he turns up. A week later, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus didn't rebuke him for not being a Mary. Why didn't you just have this on the moment, on the spot, dramatic encounter? He says, took Thomas's question seriously and said, look, here, here's the evidence, right? It's okay. Now, my background before I studied theology, I studied medicine, so I have a background in science. Um, I'm a bit of a, if, if you know me, I'm a bit of a skeptic, a bit of a cynic. Um, I love the fact that God takes skeptics and cynics and seekers after evidence really seriously. You know, if you're not someone who has a Mary-like experience, bang, but you're someone who wants evidence, that's a good thing. Don't ever let anyone who's super religious try and make out that that's somehow a deficiency in your cognitive apparatus that you want evidence. That's okay. That's good. God gave you a brain. God wired you up to not be a skeptic. You're the kind of person who, you know thinks GMOs are a good thing and 
doesn't buy goop from Gwyneth Paltrow's website, you know, and think that putting crystals in various parts of your body will heal every ailment that you have. You, you, you want evidence, right? That's good. Now, here's the beauty. Christianity and faith in Christianity has plenty of evidence to support it. Now, not scientific evidence for sure, because you can't do a double-blind clinical trial to show the efficacy of prayer or the resurrection, but historic evidence that, that we can explore. The last 2,000 years are, are full of people who have set out to disprove the resurrection and have had their minds changed as they, as they examined the evidence. Lawyers have done this, historians have done this, philosophers have done this. That if you approach the facts, if you approach history with an open mind saying, here's what I need to know to believe, uh, with your questions, you will, you could, you might find answers. But here's the thing about our questions, right? See, I think Thomas, Thomas's questioning was, it was really a questioning that sought after answers. And that can be quite different. So in our world, sometimes our questioning and our doubt can actually be a strategy to avoid commitment and avoid finding answers, can't it? In two ways. Uh, firstly, there's the emotional fear many of us have to actually you know, nail down the truth and commit. So you might, you might have friends like this who've dated and dated and dated and dated and dated, and they're never sure enough that now is the right time to get married. And you know what? At that point, at some point, you'd go, listen, if you've been living together for 10 years, you've probably accumulated enough data to make a sensible choice about whether this is the right person to marry or not, right? I'd, I'd say at that point, there's something else going on. You may be just questioning as a way of avoiding commitment. Okay, that can happen. But there can be a deeper way where we, we, our questions don't take us to a place of commitment, and that is because in our postmodern world, what is valued more than having the answer is being on a questioning journey. We're to question everything and question and question, and it's the questioning that matters. You, you hear this in such phrases like, the journey is the destination. That's stupid. Have you ever been stuck in an airport? Well, I, I could be in Hawaii right now, enjoying the beach and out surfing, but you know what? I'm stuck in an American airport, and I've been here for 24, but that's okay. This is all I really wanted, because I'm on the journey, and the journey is what matters. It's really dumb. Uh, but, but we say that because there's this postmodern idea that you, that, that you can never actually arrive, particularly at truth. So therefore, what really the, the, the authentically, um, to be authentically intellectually honest, you just have to keep questioning everything. But actually, that doesn't work because the point of questions is to arrive at an answer. So we've got to be careful and say, look, the questionings, the questionings, the questionings are meant to take us to a point where, like Thomas, we can make a decision. You know, when Thomas falls down at Jesus' feet and says, my Lord and my God, that's the logical place his questioning has taken him to. And you and I have to come to that same, in the end, we have to come to that same decision point as we follow the trail of evidence Will we get to the point where we, we have to make a decision about Jesus? Is he Lord and God, or is he just a crazy man? 
or a myth of history. Now, that's, it's not easy, right? And Jesus gets that. He says to Thomas, uh, because you have seen me, you have believed. Then he says, blessed are those, that's all of us, you see this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's hard. We can't see Jesus physically. And that can make the questioning and the life of faith harder. Jesus got that. But it's still possible, right? So that's why we run courses here like Alpha, because we want to be a culture where questions and thought are taken really seriously. For sure, we believe in the God of Mary who turns up and changes lives. Boom, and I'm praying that that'll happen for someone today. We also believe in the God of Thomas who turns up and deals with our intellectual questions gently and sensitively and compellingly. And I pray that that'll happen for us today as well. Then there's a third way to encounter Jesus. And I love this. This is Peter. Um, a bit of background before we get to this. Uh, if, if Mary was converted on the spot and Thomas had his questions, Peter, uh, Peter's initial experience of Jesus after the resurrection was that he trusted Jesus because he found Jesus incredibly useful. Okay? Think about it. Um, he's out there fishing. So Jesus died. They know he's dead. They all, and, and now there have been some appearances, but he's gone back to his day job. He's given up on this whole full-time religion thing. He's off running his business. He's a fisherman. He's a commercial fisherman. And he's not had a good night. And this bloke on the side of the bank says to him, hey, guys, how's the fishing going? I say, oh, not so good. Well, why don't you throw your net over that side? I say, okay, we'll do that. And suddenly, I mean, business is booming. He follows Jesus' advice, and his business goes incredibly well. And immediately he thinks, oh, it's Jesus, jumps off, runs through the water, they sit down and have breakfast, okay? He found Jesus incredibly useful because Jesus helped him at his point of need to grow his business. Now, uh, I want to suggest that actually that's how many of us start off with God. A bit like Peter, we find God useful. It's the old saying which atheists don't like, but it's quite commonly said, you know, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. What does that mean? Well, it's a statement from the First World War that when you're in dire straits, when the enemy's coming in, the shells are, are all around you, and you're about to die, at that point you cry out to God and say, oh God, help me. And sometimes he helps you, and you find God really useful then. Or it's, you've, you've been to the doctor, you've been to the oncologist, and they've taken the tests, and you're waiting for the results, and you pray to God as you wait for those results, and you say stuff like, God, uh, if, if you give me a clean bill of health, then I'll serve you forever, or some such words. And then you get a clean bill of health, and you go, wow, that's amazing. God, fantastic. You found God useful. Or maybe your marriage is in strife, or your kids are in difficulty, and you're, you've tried everything. You know, you've been to the therapist, you've been to the counselors, you've done everything, and you, you eventually you go, God, help. And sometimes God helps. And you go, wow, that's amazing, right? You find God useful. But is that enough? <laughs> that's, how, that's, how, that's how Peter starts his journey. But, but the end of these stories come to a sort of a crescendo in this final interaction that Jesus has with Simon Peter. And when they finished eating, he says, he's saying to Peter, I don't want you just to find me useful. He says, Simon, uh, son of John, 
Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Why do you reckon Jesus kept asking him whether he loved him? I, I mean, I can't read Jesus' mind. I'm not really sure at one level. But here's what I, at least this is going on. It's really hard, but incredibly important, that each of us move from a place of finding Jesus useful to finding Jesus beautiful. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, Jordan Peterson, Canadian psychologist, quite popular at the moment, and Peterson has this great outlook on, on irreligious people, on atheists. He basically says there's no such thing as an atheist. Really, no one lives like an atheist. And what he says is, in the end, we all know we need God. We all want to find God useful in our times of great extremity. We want to find God useful, provide a moral framework, help us with life. And Jesus is saying to Peter, you know what? It's not enough to find me useful. I want you to find me beautiful because if you find me beautiful, you will love me. And that's what Jesus wants. The end journey of our encounters with Jesus, of our questioning, and of our finding Jesus useful is not to stay with just Jesus is there to help me. It's for something to switch inside of us where we go, Jesus, I see you as beautiful, and therefore I love you. And that's hard. That's not easy, but it's vital, isn't it? It's absolutely vital. I mean, you just think about any relationship you're in, right? Imagine for a moment, I'll, let me illustrate this with a somewhat absurd illustration. Imagine for a moment I was single and extremely wealthy. I would have a great problem at that point, wouldn't I? What would my problem be as a single, 40-something, extremely wealthy man in Sydney? My biggest, I would have many problems. One of my problems would be to try and figure out with this massive oversupply of 20 and 30-something gorgeous women flocking to date me, I would have, I would, my biggest problem would be to try to figure out which of all the women who wanted me, wanted me <laughs> because they found me useful or because they found me beautiful. <laughs> who loved, who of the women would love me because of what I could give them because of my great wealth and who would love me for me? Now, thankfully, this is uh, not true. I neither have great money nor a single status. But you watch the lives of the very wealthy and you know that this is a great problem. When you can't discern whether people want you because you're useful to them or they want you because they love you and they find you beautiful. I mean, you, if you have kids, you know that, don't you? I mean, what, what's your relationship with your kids like if, if really your kids just treat you like a, you know, an ATM and a, and a you know, home you know, take-out meal service. If all you are is useful to your children, and your children just find you useful, but they don't find you beautiful intrinsically, 
you know that the relationship's not great. It diminishes us. It's not what we're made for. And so it is with Jesus. He keeps on at, Thomas, at, at, Tom, at Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because that's what matters. So, this morning, do you love Jesus? Do you find him beautiful or you still just find him useful? And it's okay if you're at the place where you find him useful. Like, Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter. It's a good, that's an okay starting point. But it's just a starting point. And what will it take for you to move to a place where you actually look at Jesus and you go, huh, there is no more compelling or beautiful being in the world. And I want to give my whole life to the love and service of this God. That's what he wants for you. That's what he wants for me. So, for the Marys here, hear God speak to you and let him change your life on the spot. For the Thomases here, check out the evidence, sign up, do Alpha, come and get some books from me, talk, question, think. For the Peters here, call out, find God useful. But for all of us, for all of us, will you, will you walk the path towards finding God beautiful? And will you love Jesus? And will you follow him? Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we uh, thank you that you love us as we are and you meet us as we are and you've made us vastly different and that's wonderful and glorious. And I pray for each of us in this room this morning that you will help us to love you. I pray now, Lord, that there will be a Mary-like experience for people, that there will be some in this room who will leave this building today transformed on the spot as they hear you call them home. I pray for those of us with doubts and questions and struggles that like Thomas, you will gently and graciously provide the evidences we need so that we can come home to you. And I pray like Peter, each of us in this room will move from finding you useful to finding you beautiful and loving you. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.